Hey guys, welcome back to Block Channel. We're back for episode 72. And, you know, we're we're knee deep into this whole, you know, COVID craziness that's been going on. We've had these interesting macro market effects. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of interesting things arise from a monetary policy um, from many countries all over the world. They t they've taken a you know reactionary approach um, to like, the you know, the greater global macro environment. And so that being said, we've had some pretty good conversations um, thus far this season talking about uh, streaming payments, uh, governance, uh, and, and, you know, kind of just sort of just trying to cover the basis of where we're at in crypto while everyone is, you know, getting distracted by everything that's going on. Um, so that being said, today, I think we're poised to have another really good conversation um, that's more specifically directed on Bitcoin. Uh, normally, we try to have, you know, etc. Um, and so like this, this one, I, you know, having on another individual who, who a larger Bitcoin proponent from that community, I think is interesting as we move past Bitcoin's third happening and moving going forward into the future. Um, so that being said, I'm joined by my two favorite co-hosts again, uh, Dimitrik and Dr. Petty. Uh, gentlemen, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience for number 72? Dr. Corey Petty here, uh, CSO of Status and co-founder of the Bitcoin Podcast and favorite co-host of Block Channel. Uh, looking forward for this one because the, the kind of the theoretical, philosophical stuff around Bitcoin is, is fascinating. And I'm Dimitrik, also the uh, co-founder of the Bitcoin Podcast Network. And uh, I'm an essential, so I haven't been quarantined at all. I thought things were going to get real weird, so I got essential tattooed on me. I thought it was going to get real Mad Max real fast, but it didn't. So I regret that. But... Uh, it's good to be back, Steve. <laughs> I've been bunkered down here, you know, on a path of self-growth, working on, you know, keeping myself mentally together, but also continuing to work on the firm, uh, working on a lot of technical related um, growth. I'm trying to catch up and come out of this uh, craziness just a little bit better than I went into it. Uh, and so that being said, um, somebody that, who I think is really good at vocalizing uh, and has a really good voice for uh, some of the values that are present in Bitcoin uh, and, and also can really uh, can make really interesting parallels uh, that I myself, since I'm so interested in a lot of these different topics around like governance, dollarization, hyper-Bitcoinization, and have spoken about it in different regards to different uh, media podcasts and things like that in the past it's cool to hear it directly from you know, somebody that already has a really nice following around that so today we're going to be joined by nick carter uh, gp at castle island ventures uh and so nick uh, we're really happy to have you on the show here thanks for taking on the invitation could you like to be um give a introduction into who you uh as a person um before you found your way here into crypto uh and then we will uh dig deeper into kind of your your general thesis on Bitcoin and and sort of just trying to derive a nice organic discussion around those values. Sure, yeah, and thank you for the invitation, gentlemen. I, I certainly appreciate it. Um, so uh, as a person, uh, pre-Bitcoin, I mean, it's interesting to think about it now because so, you know, so much of my life is is revolves around Bitcoin these days. Um, but uh, before I... Um, started at Castle Island. I worked for Fidelity. I actually worked on Bitcoin uh, for Fidelity. But uh, before that, I was in business school. And uh, before that, I uh, 
was a journalist I wrote about corporate law. Um, and uh, my undergrad is philosophy. So I've been with a, with a particular emphasis on political philosophy. So it's no coincidence that, you know, I'm very interested in public blockchains as political systems. Um, you know, people try and sometimes describe them as like politically neutral, but I would say that they have very strong philosophical undercurrents, uh, which are maybe a little harder to tease apart um, because some people think of them just as technical, just purely technical projects. But in my view, they are impregnated with, you know, philosophical values, and that's actually a great source of strength for them. That's certainly my attitude about this. So that's basically the lens through which I, I look at these projects. It's a hell of a lens, man. That's a hell of a lens to look So when you found your way into the crypto space and, and you know, observed it with this lens, where where were you mentally and kind of when was that and where was that in Bitcoin's like life cycle? Yeah, I'm like a, a second epocher, you know, how people are now talking about the epochs with the, the halvings being the the demarcations. So like I, I got into Bitcoin like um, initially mm -hmm. just as a toy in, in like 2013. I mm -hmm. was just like messing around with it on Reddit. And then I got into it much more seriously in 2016. Um, so I'm like a relative latecomer, you could say. Um, and I didn't really realize that it was such a serious project. I thought it was basically a, a, like an internet collectible for a long time. And I hadn't heard of mm -hmm. Austrian philosophy or Austrian economics. Um, you know, I'd never really read Hayek or Mises or Rothbard or anything. And so it was actually through Bitcoin, mm -hmm. but I was very familiar with libertarian philosophy, you know, Nozick um, and these philosophers that had thought about how to design societies like Rawls is a favorite of mine. Um, but I certainly was not very familiar with Austrian economics at all. And it was actually through Bitcoin that I was led down that road, which is pretty interesting. I think it's the opposite yeah. way of most people, you know, like most people that are like hardcore Bitcoiners were like serious Austrians initially. And then Bitcoin kind of conformed to that. But I was kind of the other way around. Hmm. I think for the longest time, especially, I mean, it's changed now, but in the early days of Bitcoin, you had, um, the majority of the people who flocked to it, um, proselytized it, so on and so forth, used Bitcoin as an ideological vehicle to push some philosophy that they may have had. Um, and over time, as the community grew and the different cohorts came in with their with like different plans or ideas or, or desires on what they wanted Bitcoin to do, that original, I think, ideology has, has fallen away a little bit. Like, do you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's the thing about Bitcoin. It's like a vessel for your ideology. And when it was really small, there could be like dominant narratives around it. But as time grew and like the constituency grew, it became more pluralist in nature, which also caused a lot of conflict. Um, you know, the, the dominant conflict in Bitcoin is between the people who see it as a settlement network and then between the people who see it as a payments network. And that's where we got the block size debate. Um, and so, and then you also have other like sub conflicts between the people that are much more privacy focused or anti kind of establishment. And then between the people that are okay with financializing Bitcoin and having a rapprochement with like the financial services industry. So 
it's interesting that it's you, now you have like this really significant heterogeneity, I would say, within Bitcoin, um, which maybe wasn't evident at first. And so like I probably would reject people that would describe Bitcoin as like an ideological, uh, you know, monism uh, or something that's very homogenous or monoculture. Because like from my perspective, I see these debates every single day. Although you could say like the block size war like settled one of those debates, maybe. Would you would you say that it makes sense to align yourself, um, I guess, sociopolitically or from a governance perspective um, with one particular perspective in Bitcoin? Or would you say it would make sense to hold a bunch of uh mental bunch of different similar mental models that make sense to you and then sort of like allow your own unique perspective to emerge i am personally curious like what influenced your perspective on bitcoin and cryptocurrency early on and like you know who continues to do that now yeah i think early on in my journey i found thinkers like nick zabo uh very influential to me um and Saifedean, I know Saifedean Amus gets a lot of flack, but it was his essay about Bitcoin as a settlement network that was very persuasive to me. Um, and that's certainly my view. You know, I probably disagree with like the hardcore Rothbardians uh, when with, who view fractional reserve as like something that's fundamentally immoral. I'm like pro banking, pro creation of credit instruments on Bitcoin. Um, so. I might be a little peculiar in that I am, you know, on the side of Bitcoin as a settlements network, uh, but I'm also, you know, in favor of the creation of credit on top of Bitcoin. So maybe I occupy my own like little ideological niche. But, uh, you know, you like to think that it's born out of pragmatism, like just trying to like find the the set of, you know, ideas that are the most expedient you know or like most conducive to the success of the of the project but probably there's some like ideological undercurrent which has driven everything which i'm not aware of um but uh yeah i think you know like my my analysis of bitcoin is fairly defensible uh a lot of people don't see it that way though do you think that bitcoin can move into that currency that that people dream for it to be. I know we got to have the three definitions, right? The three definition of currency, and I'm not going to state them because everybody knows them. Let's listen <laughs> to this podcast. But everybody also seems to think that they all happen at once, like some magic switch happens, and then everybody goes from using sand to using seashells. Yeah. Everybody goes from seashells to using flowers. But that's not the I, case. Yeah, what are your I, views I think on this uh, be- trinity? Sorry, I cut you off. I think people are going to be disappointed, and they have been already. You know, the the whole thing about expectations in Bitcoin land is that they end up being dashed, right? And then it's just a question of whether you can survive the, you know, the the collision between reality and your expectations. Um, I think, in particular, the unit of account expectation that Bitcoin will become a stable unit of account is very unlikely to ever be met uh, because it's it's capped in supply. And it has no elasticity of supply. So I doubt that it'll ever be a stable unit of account relative to like something like CPI. Um, in terms of being a, a, me- a good um, medium of exchange, 
I have mixed feelings on that. I think the risk is that stable coins become the major medium of exchange on public blockchains. Um, the uh, whether I don't know if you could call store value use case or not, but that's the one where it certainly shines because it, um, you know, volatility impairs that a little bit, but it's a really good store value in other ways, in particular with regards to unseizability and sensor resistance and so on. So, like, my guess is that it satisfies one of those three prongs quite well and the other two pretty poorly. But uh, that doesn't mean it's a total write-off. Okay. I can dig it. Yeah, I mean, I wish that it was a, a more widely used medium of exchange. But just, you know, looking at the data, that doesn't really seem to be the case. Um, something like Tether has a much higher kind of usage characteristic say what you want about Tether, but um, people use it for transactional purposes. Yeah, I was going to say that, like, the Bitcoin, the currency, um, may not provide all three. Uh, probably never will for the, for many of the reasons you just, you just stated and probably others, but um, the network itself can provide a platform to build on top of to provide other things that provide all three or other public blockchains that do that type of thing. So the technology itself can probably facilitate um, a sound money or it can provide all three of those certain things for, for various use cases on various timescales. But like that, like that's not, I don't think that's the point. Like the, the main thing is that you have a base layer that is, that does provide that censorship resistance and ability in an open platform to build something that can provide that later on the, on down the line with the extended ability of being able to opt out of it if it doesn't serve your need. Yeah, and like that's the, been the really the big trend of 2020, right? I mean, people haven't really been paying attention to it because we got all, all, all like kinds of nonsense going on in the world. But stable coins in 2020 went from four billion to over nine billion, or actually over ten billion as of today. Um, and your average stable coin has a velocity of like 30 to 40. You compare that to and a quote unquote native token, something like Bitcoin or Ether, those tend to be in the single digits. Um, so the big story of 2020 is blockchains being this um, settlement infrastructure um, for these alternative payment systems. Uh, and then, you know, the question is like, is that something to be embraced or like, is it like parasitic? You know, is it bad for like the native units? Like, is it immoral to? allow people to transact on these blockchains without using the native units. Um, I'm, I'm like a little surprised that the like crypto community hasn't like wrestled with these questions a little bit more. Mm. That's now, because would you say that, uh, would you say that um, definitionally uh, given that, you know, cryptocurrencies have these innate values uh, that are emergent, would you say that these are good do you think these are good tools for exporting like American values in relation to like democracy, capitalism, um, you know, like generalized, like, you know, freedom of speech. Can you, you you've spoken in this in other venues, um, which it was uh, a major uh, uh, influence for why I wanted to bring you on the show. Um, and maybe you can sort of just like speak to how you believe that, uh, you know, Bitcoin, uh, has those innate values and, and, and kind of like, why do you think um, that makes Bitcoin more successful? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I think most people would probably agree that cryptocurrencies are 
you know, their their like quote unquote physical instantiation is as code, but mm-hmm. that code like implements a set of desired like properties, and then like most fundamentally, it basically implements like a system of property rights. You know, like uh, there is a actual ledger for who owns what, and then there's also rules for how you can make changes to that ledger. And that's like all the cryptocurrencies are. And the really nice thing about them is like, well, one nice thing is that the the slots in the ledger are finite, so it can have value, uh, which is great. Uh, the other nice thing is that the rules for changing or updating the ledger are pretty well understood. They're pretty transparent. They don't change very often. If they do change, it's with a lot of deliberation. And uh, that means that it's hard to like insert arbitrary changes or uh, make make changes which are you know, detrimental to the property owners, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. speaking in a really abstract way. Um, And that like fundamentally is like the the kind of value proposition, I think. Um, And if you like consider Bitcoin as a, like, if you consider Bitcoin as like a system of values, which is then implemented in code, I think there's like a few like very essential traits. So like, one is that the units are scarce. That's very obvious. Everybody knows that. Um, a less uh, well-known one is it's difficult to arbitrarily seize someone's property because the property is encoded as information, which is easy to conceal. Um, and then the you know another well-known property is like it's difficult to stop someone broadcasting uh, a, you know an update to the ledger. Um, so we call that sensor resistance. And then the probably the last one is um, it's easy to verify that your coins are authentic, so you have counterfeit resistance. Um, and that last one is basically, it, you know, I would say that's within um, that's one of the ways the Bitcoin ensures strong property rights within the system. Um, so to me, like it seems like it's designed in a way that gives end users like very strong property rights. Um, and you know, if you think like, I guess it's a little tempting to say that's like a profoundly American idea, but really I think it's the case that America is founded on these enlightenment ideas, which, you know, follow from thinkers like Locke, who was very keen on property rights as, you know, the foundation for a functioning society. Um, so I, I think I wouldn't say the Bitcoin like exports American values per se, but it certainly has a lot of commonality with the things which make America successful, which is a respect for individualism, uh, a respect for property rights. Um, and it's, it, it has a lot of dissimilarities with like authoritarian states and the values they encode. So it's no surprise to me that like, you know, the big constituency for Bitcoin is Americans, which might seem weird because like Americans need Bitcoin the least, you know, out of probably all the countries out there. But um, they kind of grasp the core ideas pretty well too. And that's not to say that like America has a monopoly on, you know, the values encoded within the Bitcoin system. Um, You know, there's plenty of like Europeans, you know, people of the world over love it, but it does seem to have a very vibrant like American constituency, which is really interesting um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of a beautiful property that it's, uh, it's like hostile to 
authoritarian ideas and it's it's you know something that people who love freedom would probably align with would you say that because i know that you um i'm not sure if you're whether you're a founder or an investor uh, but in coin metrics um uh are, are, you, are you a founder there or, or investor so I started the project when I was in uh-huh. business school, and then uh-huh. we incubated it as a business when we started Castle Island. So it's kind of both. It's a little bit uh, peculiar, awesome. but yeah. So so that leads me into this question, which is in relation to like distribution, right? So when it comes to you know Bitcoin's like consensus code, uh, what is there as accepted? Uh, uh, cryptographically assured like values, right? So out of the gate, would you say that? Bitcoin where it is, even if you obviously if you copied and pasted in the exact same design like elsewhere, but you had a more centralized initial distribution, would you say it changes the values that um, that system like uh, inevitably ends up outputting? Like, would you say that a long tail distribution of an of an asset um, through an elongated proof of work period is a major part of like sustaining those social the social ethos of any system that it derives from cryptocurrency? I happen to think so for sure. Yeah. So I, I love proof work, you know, so I know not everybody does, but I don't love that there's a big environmental footprint, but I do Mm -hmm. love that it allows um, a protocol to issue coins at effectively market price with limited seniorage. You know, I think that's a really elegant property that is underappreciated. And I view the duty of like the protocol engineers as being, to find out how to distribute coins to the general public in a way that's reasonably fair, um, especially if it's like a very important and powerful system, how do you make sure that the public gets access to it in like a in a way that's not completely arbitrary or you know super centralized? Um, and proof work lets you just like auction off those coins progressively over time. Um, my one critique I might have of Bitcoin is that the supply curve is too aggressive, like. It was a very steep supply curve. You know, 87% of Bitcoins are issued now. In an ideal world, maybe the initial distribution would have lasted 50 years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to make sure there wasn't as much uh, historical contingency in who got the coins. But yeah, I mean, the proof of work uh, element of distribution uh, to me is really, really beautiful. And I don't think we've found, like people have tried, like Stellar did a bunch of um, kind of indiscriminate airdrops uh, which didn't seem to work. Um, but yeah, I think it just comes down to fairness and a, a rejection of like seniorage, basically. Yeah, like launching a chain now is like wholly dependent on who do we want our initial stewards and custodians to be? Do they need to be by design more technically like oriented? Are we just aiming for like, is this a DeFi related chain that has like those sort of activities? So we want our initial uh, adoptees to be, um, uh, you know, finance related folks. Like, so should we have an airdrop that like uh, uh, targets those sorts of individuals? I think the right way to create a, a, a a firm distribution that makes sense long term um, that get inevitably will convert to a long tail distribution because a lot of these things definitely start as you know as a as a bell curve, especially those that have like assets that are locked up in Genesis. So you know we and inevitably want to take these bell curve related like distributions and push them towards a power distribution that is collectively in the hands of those that are going to uh, sustain the asset, those that are going to trade the asset and provide additional liquidity and like distribution, and those that are going to speculate. 
on the asset, whether from an investment standpoint or directly like from usage. And the right way to go about doing that is wholly dependent on the type of asset and its applications, like it's a specific application, excuse me. Mm. Yeah, and like in the case of something which we anticipate to become a global money, I think it's very important to be very judicious with how that distribution occurs. Um, And I can't really think of a better way than a proof of work even if it meant that there was a ton of luck involved in the early days, you know, it was just a function of who knew about the project, which is like, we, you know, we, we see those early coins moving uh, yesterday and, or two days ago. And it's like, well, that was probably someone that just like ran the Bitcoin core software for half an hour. Yeah. And mine never a bunch take that blocks. away though. You never take the luck factor away. No. It doesn't yeah, matter it's what like system frozen you in time now. Yeah. And to distill a little bit of what you said, Mackie, uh, I think that if you're launching a chain nowadays, it's too dependent on people and not enough dependent on ideas. Uh, Bitcoin got lucky because an idea was allowed to permeate relatively purely for a good enough time for it to grow in value in more ways than one to a lot of people. Uh, But the other chains don't have that benefit because blockchain, the cat is out of the bag. So, I think I think the I think uh, chain launches, uh, at least from a public chain perspective, something that is proof of work hard or, you know, I'm really bearish on like proof of stake assets out of the gate. But at least from a proof yeah. of work standpoint. Right. I think we're going to continue to get better at public chain launches like Ethereum was its own, you know, sort of special case. Zcash was another interesting case. Handshake is another case. Right. There are there are. definitely different ways to go about like doing this and um you just kind of gotta like pick and choose and like take these different best practices and sort of remix them uh and and kind of like go like with your intuition on where your market is going to initially Mm -hmm. like emerge um that being said uh petty since we're talking about like distribution and like statistical analysis i mean have you ever done like much dig into like bitcoin ethereum and some of like these other assets and gotten anything like quantifiable out of that no, I've always wanted to. Um, it's been a, been a uh, kind of a problem of time and resources because like, like, I would do a lot of the initial distribution analysis of early ICOs specifically aimed at trying to make people aware that the narrative that we're being incredibly inclusive and everything is equally distributed across uh, those that are participating was was wrong, right? It was the same scenario of very small amount of people having a tremendous amount of the overall distribution within any given ICO. And it was and, and the way in which these things were distributing them was crippling or like exacerbating that. And and you don't see that as much in Bitcoin because um you had this like like you said it, it was an aggressive curve. And because the value was so low for so long, those coins got distributed quite quickly or lost because they were valueless um, at the time. And Ethereum, it has it has a much more. I don't know. I haven't looked at it to like really be like hard lined in, in this in this idea. But I would assume that Ethereum's distribution is less distributed than Bitcoin's is because it's a it's a it's a it's a younger network that has that operated when people understood what blockchains were and the potential um, value accrual of getting in early, and now like everything after that is, is, is even worse. But I would like to go back now and see kind of um, do more distribution analysis of Bitcoin and Ethereum, especially um, involved with like the current supply or like the circulating supply versus the total like total supply that's been minted. 
because there's a there's a quite a bit of a difference between those two things. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. This is why like the like the the public ledger element is so nice because you can just go and perform this analysis. You can determine the Gini coefficient of Bitcoin and Ethereum, although it doesn't map to individuals. It maps to UTXOs and accounts, so it's not perfect. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's like one thing I will say. You know, we look at this data it's at Coinmetrics. Both Bitcoin and Ethereum are becoming more distributed over time, as there's just more churn in the ownership, uh, which is great. Like I think you, you need, as like a young currency, you need this progressive uh, distribution um, or dispersion of ownership. And the moment you see concentration, I think that spells doom. And for for the last couple of years, there have been a whole bunch of like old school cryptocurrencies that have been getting more and more concentrated. And my guess is that that is probably fatal to the project. Let me, let me challenge you on that, or maybe ask you something to see where this goes. Um, I would argue that use case is a tremendous facilitator of that churning and distribution. And when you are only able to have a use case of storage of value, it limits your ability to churn because there's no reason to move it. Um, so I would, I would imagine Ethereum would be faster in that distribution than Bitcoin is because there's mm. a lot more things you can do on Ethereum than Bitcoin as it currently stands. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think that's perfectly fair. And I would say that's probably an underappreciated facet of Ethereum uh, is that um, there's like a greater diversity of things you can do on it. Uh, or maybe Bitcoiners don't appreciate that very much. Uh, but in, yeah, in, in terms of like servicing that notion of um, the distribution of ownership, uh, that's pretty pretty useful. Um, I mean, Bitcoin did have a big head start, as you say. Um, but yeah, Ethereum has reached a state where uh, it's kind of not far behind in terms of the number of addresses with you know X balance, that kind of thing. So I got, uh, I want to spur some conversation. We might find a question in here. Uh, the first thing is, is I Googled Nick Carter and congratulations, sir. You show up ahead of Backstreet Boys, Nick Carter by quite a mile. And uh, <laughs> that's pretty wow, baller because that dude has an open. Opening. Yeah, he's got an opening. He's got an open sexual assault charge out there and you're still. <laughs> so yeah, you hate to see it, man. You hate to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations on that. Um, I actually I, used to joke that like one of my objectives was to become more notable than the other Nick Carter. Well, I had, like, it. A, I had a troubled it, childhood. People I even opened up an me, incognito you know, window. The Backstreet Boy. <laughs> you, you did it, man. You did it. You're now you're a now you're a Block Street boy. <laughs> oh boy, Black Street boy. Wait, that's <laughs> going that. that's, Oh my! Oh my! Oh my. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, no, I like it. <laughs> the other thing is, I kind of want to push back a little. We started this interview, and um, we talked about the you know the three characteristics of currency and money, and um, store value, meaning exchange, unit of account. But I think every conversation that's had on those three things is kind of putting the cart before the horse this early on and in Bitcoin's infancy and cryptocurrency's infancy, because those things are kind of agreed upon by an immeasurable 
consensus of human irrationality that's like almost immeasurable. And and I'm saying that because we say the dollar is a store of value, but hell, my one dollar this year is going to be equivalent to the, my one dollar next year. It's going to be worth less. What the hell kind of value am I storing? Uh, exactly. What value am I storing there? I'm not storing anything, actually. And units of account. Well, that's also going to depend upon the region that you're at, the, the people that you're speaking with, how you're negotiating agreements on a deal or terms of a deal. Uh, the same with medium of exchange. Um, I think these things change over time and they develop in an emergent way that's not really measurable when you're taking place in it as it's happening. So I still think Bitcoin stands a chance. Do I know what that looks like? Not even remotely. But I do know that in one unit of one million subunits, there's a lot of room for math in there. And there's also a lot of room for irrational convergence around ideas of medium of exchange and unit of account. So I'm still holding the flag up that Bitcoin can do it. And I'm also holding that simultaneous white flag of up. I don't know how. <laughs> so maybe I'm just opening the floor. To discussion. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really great and underappreciated point that like the credibility, the long-term stability and credibility of the system is very important. And unequivocally, that's something that Bitcoin has been able to do well is like people would say to its detriment because it doesn't change very often, but the lack of change is like a strength, right? Yeah. It's, um, it's because, a constant, you know, in math, guy who transcendental. The so, dude who spent his coins that are 11 years old, the network functioned as expected and everything worked. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, there's a beauty in that. Um, you know, compare that to like, if you leave some dollars in a bank account for 10 years, like who knows if they would just get eminent domain or it would get closed or, you know, something or other would happen. Um, you know, and, and that like, this is probably a critique I would have of, um, of Ethereum is, uh, is the pace of change is like pretty aggressive. Um, and you know, there's nothing wrong with change inherently, but it is an opportunity for entities that have a economic interest in changing something to like, um, push through changes, which are favorable to them and maybe not like favorable to the rest of the community. So that's probably my, like my main critique of Ethereum is like the, uh, the potential for, uh, lobbying, uh, being introduced by the high rate of change. Um, but you could say that's the trade-off. And, ex and in exchange for, for that, the existence of that factor, you get more pace of innovation. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, the trade-off they've made. Yeah, very true. And I, I mean, not to, to make the argument again, but I don't see why everyone counts out the fact that Bitcoin is a constant. I mean, constants are very powerful. They're transcendental. In fact, some of them are literally called transcendental numbers. Pi, E, uh, what's his name? Avogadro. Who's the chemistry guy, Corey? Moles? Is it Avogadro? <laughs> Avogadro's number? A mole? Avogadro's number. These are transcendental numbers because they're constant and they're dependable. And we can build systems, very beautiful, very complex systems on top of them. So... I'm just putting the argument out there for everyone listening. What is so wrong with Bitcoin being so constant in a world of very rapid change? Yeah, and I'll add to that, you know, having been inside 
um, an enormous, uh, you know, seven trillion dollar asset manager in their their crypto unit. Um, while Fidelity was developing their digital assets product, while I was there, um, although they didn't launch it until after I left, you know, a lot of the discussions were about, well, what can we support here? What can we realistically support if there's a world of forks and airdrops? Like, what are the protocol level risks that we're facing? What can we reliably do as a large organization with lots of exposure to PR and so on? Um, we can't risk building on something that's malleable. So that's why they started with Bitcoin. Uh, now, my guess is that they will move to other assets in time, but there was certainly respect for the fact that Bitcoin is fairly predictable. Although, you know, that said, uh, the existence of the BCH fork and other subsequent forks like that also caused a lot of consternation for sure, mm-hmm. because like you don't want your digital gold bars that you have in the vault to turn into like digital tungsten, you know, <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. Well, what would you say, like, given that you've, you know, worked there with Fidelity, you're, you're also a fund manager at a fund now too. you know, worked on, um, you know, uh, um, uh, a data analysis, like company for cryptocurrency. What has been, um, the lesson that you have derived from all this learning that has been like most important to you as you have ingested, uh, you know, different, you know, economic values and different mental models over the years and have boiled that down to what is your, like your internal thesis? What was the most important lesson that you picked up along the way that helped you formalize that perspective? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if like I'm at the stage, you know, in my career where I can like uh, start doing retrospectives or anything, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, because like the way I see it, I'm just still right at the very beginning. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I've been wrong with a lot of the predictions that I made, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really regret making them because like, you know, uh, the number one thing I've done is like produce content, which people seem to like. Uh, although I go back and I cringe when I read it. It happens um, to the best of us. You know, I probably, uh, the main lesson I've learned is that you, at a certain point, if you're like, ideas are too discordant with reality, you should probably um, reevaluate your, your, your priors and your like ideological setting instead of, like constructing like a false model of reality in your in your brain to to resolve that uh, you know dissonance. Um, so I've become less dogmatic about Bitcoin as time has gone on. I mean, I would still consider myself a Bitcoiner, mm-hmm. um, but I've definitely become more open-minded. And you know, stable coins was something I totally wrote off. I was like, "What the hell's the point of that? Our dollars are already digital." And then it took me a long time to realize, well, actually exporting <laughs> dollars to the world's, you know, to the global south is actually something that might be really useful for millions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really took me a long time to get there. Yeah, I think that a lot of these sort of like theses that have emerged, uh, or at least over the past like couple of years with the genitals ability of ethereum and being able to you know kind of like tack on multiple different use cases and we've had a lot of different primitives come out of that one being the most important being i mean we had tether prior but as far as like pure experimentation goes and having something that's purely programmatic ethereum is something that has been able to like enable that and like with that obviously we have like programmatic back 
stable coins. We have dollar back stable coins. We have like all that is uh, all that is like excellent, you know, to help like the the crypto space grow. But like those are still just primitives that are part of this narrative that over time we're going to have more like we're going to have like you know stable like <clears throat> reflexive assets that will you know over time hope to improve the stable coin model we'll have primitives that are going to be like drop in uh and uh, contracts and who, who knows maybe even like base chains um that help us alleviate the problems around like censorship resistance for like social media and discussions around those things it's like taking it's it's over time these use cases like get refined and then we would finally find ways to like implement them like many people don't still don't talk about like tcrs and token curated registries because really token-based voting and those sort of like thought processes rolled into DAOs. when it came to like color coins and things like that the idea of like you know different you know uh uh uh, non-fungible like assets and things like that that eventually evolved into things like nfts and you know etc so it's just like we start we experiment sometimes we might look at something formulate a hypothesis based on the current data set and then and over time we're going to need to like go back and like reformulate that hypothesis and like that is part of this like synthesis this like alchemy that happens and like what i really like to call that is um that, or that process is creative crypto economic recombination so as, uh, over time as these different primitives become available we look through it through a different lens or a same lens and say hey where is this use case stand in crypto and is it something that is it one that will be sustainable and i think there will be many times where uh the what that uh, there'll be um influencers in the space that might have a particular thesis on an asset that is completely tangential and contrarian to one that is like currently emerging but i think that um that is part of the learning process into figuring out what actual use cases blockchains are important for um so you know i hope that the the chains that continue to derive and come about um, in the future, you know, maintain a Bitcoin like like ethos want to, you know, export something intrinsically, extrinsically of value, uh, whether it be like social or financial, socio financial, socio technical, etc. Um, uh, but that being said, uh, Corey Petty, do you have any more specific questions for Nick uh, before we scoot out of here? Do you see any drastic changes um, in how people view Bitcoin, particularly in relation to the other open networks, um, if it's able to put through some of these um, large functionality changes like Taproot? Yeah, that's a good question. I found out recently that Schnorr, Bip Schnorr Taproot is probably further off than we think or than most people think. Um, and I think Bitcoin's moment of, you know, there's been like a view in Bitcoin that it's just a matter of time till it creates smart contracts um, or like at least a limited set of smart contracts, which work. Um, it, that possibility seems to be getting more remote. Um, you have Jeremy Rubin's, um, it was called Secure the Bag. Um, initially, it's called something else now. Oh, um, uh, OP check input verify. That's oh, right. Check template verify. Yeah. Check template verify. Yeah. So that like gives you some some basic smart contract functionality. Um, Taproot would help there, uh, but really I see Schnorr Taproot as like a efficiency win and a privacy win. You know, it certainly helps with multi sig. 
you can do a lot more multi-sig much more cheaply. To me, that seems mostly like an efficiency gain, um, which is great. Like that's the whole Bitcoin philosophy, uh, the development philosophy. It's like, look, we have a bounded amount of block space for like good reasons. And we're going to figure out how to compress as much value transfer into as few bytes as possible. Uh, so it's really great to see like custodians are now using, you know, like native SegWit outputs and they're doing batching and better fee estimation. So it's like a very in- incrementalist philosophy, you know, compare it with like Ethereum or other chains, which are more like we want sweeping innovation. Let's like, you know, uh, let's let's dramatically change things um, and like experiment and so on. So I th- I think that like it's good to have one chain, which is like incrementalist in that way. Um, but I don't know. I think it's, it's going to be a long way off before we have, you know, pretty expressive smart contracts on Bitcoin, um, you know, for better, for worse, but, um, you know, multi-sig to me is like a smart contract. So I think we're still going to be able to do plenty of interesting stuff without having that full expressibility and the interesting stuff that people want to do that you can't do on Bitcoin. They'll have plenty of options elsewhere. So you know, I just I kind of just had a a realization here while we were having this discussion, and I, maybe we'll just get your quick feedback, and then we'll get out of here on this. But basically, there's like, you know, in the traditional political realm, you have like the Western and Eastern Hemisphere. So you got like um, Republicans, you've got Democrats, right? Right. So we've got conservatives and we've got liberals and so in the crypto space you know you can look at chains as like kind of like two different ends of that spectrum bitcoin being on the far left being more conservative ethereum being for more far you know right excuse me or reverse you can reverse the two concepts you know what i mean um and ethereum being more liberal so what i mean by that is if you approach chain design ethos distribution etc with a moderate centrist approach i think you actually have a lot of struggle when it comes to ultimately adoption and building out your narrative because you don't have anyone from an extremist standpoint like lean towards rapid progressive like innovation which will like kind of like you know go up competitively against like kind of like social conservatism that might be existing in the community and then the opposite end of that vice versa which is extreme conservatism which is constantly you know at arms with people who want to be seemingly more progressive so eventually they meet towards the middle but inevitably that is where innovation lies like the in between on both ends of the spectrums but not just sitting in the middle and i think that what a lot of assets um, uh, don't realize is that that's very important for your initial success Uh, and one of the assets that i would say is a clear indicator that this can be a problem is an asset like zcash where the asset had clear to net technically semantic difference that made it sensible to exist audible team incredible researchers great investment great backers but ultimately kind of just fell in the middle as a moderate of adults building an asset that over time didn't really ever build a concrete story around it so therefore its community is not as sticky and so it makes it difficult for those sort of like assets to proliferate it's tech has proliferated zero knowledge proofs but the asset in its community and its network effect has not grown similarly and I think that um, there's a lot of lessons to be learned here when we talk about values and what type are naturally imminent uh, of these different asset classes, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's Ethereum, whether it's Handshake, whether it's uh, an abstracted token built on top of one of these systems um, and kind of like what comes from that. So I think that continuing to have these discussions on a chain's 
initial identity and the formulation of that identity is going to be part of the secret sauce formula on like how to actually appropriately build a public chain. Yeah. And one thing I'll briefly add to that is like, you notice that um, there's kind of a life cycle to the, the progressivism, conservatism, uh, conservatism uh, uh, continuum, you know? So like it's easy when you have a very small community to be united and, you know, pursue really rapid innovation and iteration, uh, you know, and be a crypto progressive. And then as the stakes grow and like the chain becomes worth billions of dollars, then people have like vested interests. There are certain businesses built on top of the chain, which need things to be a certain way. And then it becomes more difficult to push changes through, which I think definitely happened with Ethereum. It kind of moderated its, um, its progressivism, so to speak, a little bit. That's why you see debates over Prague Pow, you know, uh, which is stalled out now with neither side really having an advantage. Um, and so it's like an interest, it's interesting to see blockchains go through this, this life cycle transformation. Um, and I don't know if there's like an optimal, you know, trade off along that, that line. Uh, like if there's an optimal rate of change. But it certainly slows down when the stakes grow and there there ends up being like lots and lots of real money at stake. That being said, uh, now with, you know, Bitcoin through its third happening and everything, like what's what's something that uh, as we leave this conversation, what's something that you're getting excited about with like Bitcoin now? Like other major like social events are like out of the way. What is there anything that's exciting you technically like, you know, Taproot, Schnorr, those things like that might be further out, but what is there to get excited about now? Is it innovation around layer two? Is it continued growth of the asset and additional adoption by institutions? What, what gets you going? So for me, it's like using Bitcoin's properties in a way that intersects with the real world and is genuinely useful. Uh, and like Bitcoin's nice properties are basically not taken advantage of a lot of the time. So something very simple is proof of reserves, you know, so cryptocurrencies are cryptographically auditable, right? And it's very cheap to audit them, who owns them, how much they own, you know, the timing uh, and proof of reserves basically takes those audits and not only exposes them to an auditor, but also exposes them to the users of a custodial institution like a bank or an exchange. But right now, virtually no one does it. Um, so I know that there are some proof of reserves um, audits or uh, you know processes in the works at some of these exchanges. So that's very exciting to me. And like again, most people don't don't care about that at all. But I think it's just part of making the whole ecosystem just more functional and more credible. The fact that people can verify that there's not fractional reserve occurring at their custodians. And I think it's inevitable that there always will be custodians. You know, we've seen that like over 20% of Bitcoins are held in an intermediated way. So clearly people want custodial access. They want effectively banking. I think that's a pretty natural human impulse. So the growth of like, banking products and financial services on Bitcoin, which actually make use of its like really nice properties uh, and maybe even give us a more accountable banking system, you know, that is really, really exciting to me. That doesn't really require any technical change. It just requires creative entrepreneurs. So uh, those are the kind of people I'm trying to meet, you know, and back and, and support. 
Well, thank you for all your uh, excellent perspectives today, Nick. This was definitely the type of discussion that I wanted to have. Um, you know, definitely wish di wish you continued success in like your investments and everything through Castle Island, uh, and also your personal investment in the Bitcoin. Let's all hope that for ourselves. Um, but uh, that being said, thank you know again, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for joining Corey and Dimitrik and I. You know, we don't uh, usually speak to people who are more actively like direct proponents to the Bitcoin space. And so now with a further focus, I think socially interoperability wise on all these different chains kind of like coming up, I think it's in, in bridges from a technical perspective. I think having more of these conversations and re-engaging with more people from the Bitcoin community is important and healthy because I think there was a lot of echo chamber building from like 2017 and onward. And I think that, uh, you know, kind of recalibrating and everyone having these discussions and building new narratives is important for growth. So Thank you for lending your voice to the block channel audience. Uh, and hopefully in the future, uh, when more cool stuff's gone down in Bitcoin, you'll come on back and tell us your perspectives on it and how it may have evolved. My pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. Really enjoyed it. I would like to point out before we close that Avogadro's number is not transcendental. Ooh. Damn. Dimitri. How do you feel about that, Dimitri? What'd you do? <laughs> It's, the other ones you said were. Oh. Dimitri, are you, are you, are, is your mic on mute because you're crying or something? What's wrong? Yep. <laughs> can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, I can I hear you now. Are you crying? in the settings. No, not at all. I've, I mean, I'm surprised <laughs> it's not. It's a pretty powerful constant. But do they give any reasoning as to why it's not transcendental? It's a, it's a, it's a measurement. It's not, it's not done through um kind of weird natural things it's just a unit of account that the chemistry the chemist came up with that happens to be this weird number is it's it like kind of an arbitrary number right what is it? it's like the number yeah. of atoms in a gram it's, of something number of it? number of atoms in 14 grams of hydrogen i believe okay so it's just like pretty much an arbitrary a number mole, a mole of like, hydrogen <laughs> it's a useful measuring stick i guess right that number of atoms in a mole and they did that through a specific type of chemical measurement mm. and then that ended up becoming very useful to know the number of atoms in the mole of something so you can find molarity of a given substance i feel like i could start campaigning for it to be transcendent i'm leaving this you'd be wrong why i'm leaving this I mathematical mean, roast the, in i'm not going to edit this out by the way <laughs> the other ones are just ratios that's right, just a ratio <laughs> Well, th thanks for coming on, Nick. Um, thanks for helping us roast Dimitrik and his math um, verbiage. Uh, and uh, come back on the show at some point uh, in the future, and we can talk more on this like governance philosophy that is Bitcoin values. I certainly will. Thanks, guys. Maybe